25 versus 122. Acts chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the Emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear. Great. Thank you, Catherine. Um, that was very gracious of you. To keep that passage open in your Bibles. Maybe turn the page before, because we're actually going to look at the passage before that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. Um, that is the very passage, Acts chapter 25. Um, let me pray, and then we'll hear what God has to say to us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, um, and we trust that as we open it up this morning, you will be speaking to us, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will um, make clear to us what he said already through, through the Bible, that your Holy Spirit will be speaking to our hearts, and we pray that as we hear and then as we leave, uh, you'd be forming us more into the people you'd have us be here in Liverpool for your sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, 
There is a, a written copy of what I'm going to say in English online, that is on the website, a web page behind me, our website, Christchurch.org/transcript. And there's also um, some French copies written out and some Persian copies that were uh, on the Bible's table if you would like to grab one of those before I begin. Um, so, let me begin. I get an email every week from a Christian book company and they are uh, always plugging um, these Christian biographies. And Christian biographies are great books to read. Um, they, uh, they're very popular and these books that get uh, recommended to me are often really very good books. Some of you may love Christian biographies. Some of you may have read tens, hundreds of them. Um, some of you might be reading through one right now. But um, I know not everybody is from a background or a culture where you've read one of these. It's simply a, uh, a book that is a story, a true story of somebody um, which highlights just how God has been working in their life. Uh, just the amazing things that God has done through them perhaps, or that God has done in their life. Sometimes they are books about people whose work with the poor has affected millions of lives, or it might be somebody who's gone into a foreign country to share Jesus, and it's all the things that has happened in their life where they can see some miraculous work of God or some amazing way that God has um, brought good through their life. They're great to read. I really recommend reading good Christian biographies. They open our minds to what God is doing in the world, and they um, give us role models to follow. But one of the things that can happen if you read Christian biographies, is that you see these amazing people who step out in faith, whose lives are quite, uh, quite amazing. In fact, we get people like that in the Bible. So this can happen if you read the Bible. You can end up thinking that there is this category of Christian heroes. And then there's me. There are these people that we encounter, maybe through the Bible, maybe in these Christian biographies, who are just, they stand out, they are brave, they do amazing things, their story is worth reading, and then there's me. And in their story we see exactly how God puts them in the right place at the right time. They just happen to go into the right taxi at the same time as another person, and that leads to something amazing. And then there's my life, where it's not so much about being where God wants me, just five days a week, you'll be found where your boss wants you. And these Christian heroes, that they, they are really responsive to God's leading. They go wherever he leads. Maybe they have a sign or a vision. They sense God's leading. They're attuned to where he's taking them in life. And then there's, well, then there's me. Not so much being in tune to God's leading, but just doing the, the responsibilities I'm meant to do, do my job. I am a friend to my friends. I look after my family. In their story, there's suffering, there's bravery, they suffer, maybe they, they're put in prison because of their Christian faith, they're bold. And then there's my story, where, yeah, there might also be suffering, but it's not the same kind. Uh, it's more that people let me down, or people take advantage of me. It's not necessarily because I'm a Christian, it's just what it is. Well, today's passage is really for anyone who's not that Christian hero. That's good news. It's good for you if you're not in that kind of Christian hero bracket. If your story is not really worth publishing, well, this passage is for you. The central character in this part of the Bible is a guy called Paul. And actually, of everyone, he is someone who you really would want to write a biography about. Um, there's some amazing things that happen to him. But in today's passage, 
he doesn't really feature much. You see him mention, uh, speaking verse, verse 8, you'll see him speaking verses 10 and 11, but that's about it. He doesn't say much. In today's passage, Paul doesn't achieve much. And he's not really got the opportunity to do much at all. And this passage is great for us because we're going to see how, how God still works, even when you feel like you're not really being used for God's work. In fact, when the reality of your life daily is that you feel like you're being used for somebody else's work. This passage is going to open our eyes to how God is working even when you know there's a whole lot of people who really don't want to listen to you. How God works when mostly what you're doing isn't Bible studies and evangelism. When your life isn't this beautiful picture of God's leading into the amazing things, well this passage is going to speak to how God is using that. And this is going to call us to not give up, but keep going, living a life like Jesus. If this was my story, this particular passage, Acts 25, 1-22, I would say that this story is not what I had planned. And when I was, before I went to university, I did a gap year, I mean, I thought I would maybe get some stories to put in a biography. Maybe I would have those amazing stories to send home. Well, there's one time as I was on a gap year, I was doing some Christian work in India, and my church at home had supported me. They were praying for me. They were sending me money. So I thought, I'll send home a prayer, prayer letter every month to say what I've been doing, these amazing stories. Maybe gather them up one day, put them in a Christian biography, and see all these wonderful things I've been doing. Well, there's one month where we were working in a camp centre up in the mountains. So kids were meant to come every week and we'd do some stuff with them, really great stuff, it was going to all go down there with the letter. But there was a fire in the woods nearby, a few things were damaged, and we just had to go back to the nearest village, nearest town, and uh, just stay in the motel. And all the camps were cancelled. So my, my prayer letter, what was it going to be? Well, it's more along the lines of, um, dear church, thank you so much for sending me, thank you for all the ways you've formed me and invested in me. Thank you for the prayer that you give on a regular basis. Thank you for the money that you've given to me. This month, I spent the month sitting in a motel reading a book. It's not going to make it into the biography. It doesn't really seem like you're being very useful when you're stuck. It's totally not what I planned. And we pick, where we pick up today's passage, we enter in verse 1, and at this point, Paul is totally stuck. You see, Paul, this could be a wonderful story, a great biography. He's gifted at preaching. He's gifted at planting churches. He debates for that the, Jesus is the Messiah, and he takes on the, the leading figures in the thought world to try and persuade people Jesus is the Messiah. He's great at doing what he does, but for the last two years, he's not been doing anything that he's really good at. He's been in prison. And so you've got to wonder whether... The, the beginning of this passage is it talks about Festus trying to move him and what the deal is, where he should be in prison, whether this is just not exactly what Paul had planned. This isn't his finest hour, this isn't the highlights reel. You wonder even whether this, Paul would have been more effective if he'd have actually been out, out and about, preaching the gospel, going back to the churches he's planted, or preaching in new cities, planting new churches. But we see in this passage that Paul is at the mercy of the rich and powerful. Paul is at the mercy of the ambition and the motivations of those who are in power. The first part of the passage, um, verses 1 to 4, and it kind of goes on into verse, verse, verse 12, 
is about how there's two main political players who want to use Paul for their own power. So verse 1, we meet Festus, who's the brand new Roman governor in the region. He's probably the, the most high-ranked Roman official in the region, so he's very, very politically powerful. He's extremely important. He'd be very wealthy. Um, but just like we know about uh, world leaders, they need credibility among the people they're serving to be able to have influence. So he actually needs to cozy up to the Jewish leaders, and that's the second party that we meet in verses 1 to 4. Um, the Jewish leaders are the most wealthy and influential people in their culture. Uh, the governor is powerful, but people listen to the Jewish leaders. Well, they decide to work together. The Jewish leaders ask to move Paul's custody from the Roman centre, Caesarea, to the Jewish centre in Jerusalem because um, they, we learned this in chapter 23, they've already had a plan in the past to ambush him on the way. They can move the prisoner, they'll ambush him on the way, intercept him and kill him. So they've got a motive here, they want to move Paul. Festus has got a motive, he's the new boy, he wants to curry favour with the Jewish leaders, but he also wants to follow the correct protocol. He wants to do it all by the book, so he doesn't agree to move Paul at first. But twice in verses, um, at the beginning of verses 1 to 12, we get it mentioned that this is all about the discussion about him doing a favour to the Jewish leaders. What's going on there? Well, all that's going on is that two parties are deciding Paul's fate. Paul's fate is being decided by two groups who really want to make whatever move is going to be politically most influential for them. It's not really the story of great gospel mystery. It's not really the story that you'd put in a biography. This wouldn't really be Paul's plan to be at the mercy of whatever the most powerful man decides he wants to do for his own ambition. He's not, it doesn't seem that he's where he's most useful for the gospel. It seems he's where the politicians want him. From verses 13 to 22, it's not so much where the Jewish leaders, it's about Festus and another political player, who's the, the Jewish political king. And it's Festus basically uh, discussing with the king, Agrippa, saying how he's handled this situation. And he kind of, he, he beefs it up really, he paints himself as this model of wisdom and justice. So he says in verse 16, he told the Jewish leaders that it's not the Roman custom, thank you very much, to hand over anybody before they've had the chance to defend themselves against the charges. But we've already read that that's not exactly what he said. He's not quite as upstanding as that. He was just said, well, come down to Caesarea because I'm on my way there. Um, he also mentions verse um, 17 that he didn't delay this case. But he fails to mention that although he didn't delay it when he got to Caesarea, he didn't bother going back to Caesarea for eight to ten days, it's uh, verse six. So he's just trying to explain to the king how he's done everything perfectly. He wants to make himself look good in his first month on the job. But what's going on? Well, Paul is just a Paul. Paul is just a disposable bargaining chip in a game, or a disposable piece in a game of chess with the millionaires. Now that's really, really relevant. It doesn't seem very inspiring, but that is really relevant, because that's probably what most Christians in the world are. It might be how you 
feel about your life. I mean, I know loads of Christians whose personal situation and whose future is dependent on the mood of somebody in power. Think of the person seeking asylum who settles at our church. We think there's great way that for the gospel to grow if they stay and get be part of a connect group and they can be part of the way we're serving Liverpool. But out of the blue, the Home Office say your accommodation is being moved. Next week, you're going to live in Holland. Think of the Dean of Medicine who just allocates uh, an F1 or F2 doctor to a placement in Blackpool just because they know that person's a Christian they're probably not going to make a fuss. Uh, and the plan of that person to really settle here is not working out. Think of the head teacher who moves the Christian teacher from one department to another just because then they can move somebody who's got better connections into that position. Many of us are being moved about, being messed about, being taken advantage of by somebody who's powerful. You're a player in their game, and are you really being moved by God to where he wants you? So what do you do? Well, there's one thing in this passage that we see that always seems to characterise what Paul does. And he asks the question, is there a way I can use this terrible disadvantage to the advantage of the gospel? So verses 10 and 11, he appeals to the, the rules. He refuses to be moved to Jerusalem because he says the rules don't, don't allow that. So he stands on the rules, not because he thinks, oh, that will make my life easier. That's my bargaining chip to get out of prison. It's just that that's the way he's going to preserve his life. If it could lead to a gospel hearing, well, you can appeal to the rules that are there. But he also then does something quite remarkable. He appeals to Caesar in verse 11. Now, don't, so appealing to Caesar is a bit like appealing to the high court, the highest possible ruling. Now, if there's anyone who can get him out of prison, it's, it's Caesar. So it might look like he's appealing to the, the person who will get him out of this situation. But actually, Caesar is a lord to himself. Appealing to Caesar is not the same as saying, I want a fair trial. Appealing to Caesar, you don't know if he gets out from the wrong side of bed that morning, he's going to throw the lions. Appealing to Caesar in verse 11 is not Paul's striking of an advantage to try and get out of this chess match between the two people who are moving him about. It's actually him thinking, could I bring the gospel? Is this a way to get a hearing for the gospel? And actually, it's really remarkable for another reason. Because we know that Paul is all, we know already, he's intent on going to Rome. We've seen that in chapter 19, he says, I'm going to go to Rome, which is the centre of the known world. And, and even Jesus himself in chapter 23 has told Paul, you will go to Rome. You'd imagine that what Paul had planned was to go into Rome as a free person. That's how he's going to go to Rome, and he's going to preach on the streets, he's going to set up the churches. But in fact, it seems that over the two years he's been in prison, Paul has come to realise that him going to Rome is going to be going there as a prisoner. The very climax of his missionary career that he'd been looking forward to is going to happen as a prisoner. Because by appealing to Caesar, he's going to remain a prisoner until he gets there. He's going to remain a prisoner through as long as it takes to get through a lengthy referral process and a prisoner transfer and to wait until the emperor's diary is free. That is not Paul playing a get-out-of-jail card. It's Paul playing a stay-in-jail-and-possibly-get-executed card. The only advantage is that the gospel goes to Rome. But that's what you do 
when you're only disadvantaged and being used for other people's purposes. Things aren't working as you planned, but you don't bust out, you don't moan, you don't use that as an excuse to say, well, once I'm out of this, then I can really do gospel ministry. When I'm out of this situation, that's when I can share my faith a lot better. That's when people will listen to me. When I've passed through the season, he's not making an excuse. He's, he's not putting serving God on hold. He's saying, actually, I've got to take this because there might be an opportunity for gospel. <coughs> Let me give a, a different example of the same kind of thing. A Christian union used to serve tea and coffee outside of the student union bar um, late at night when people were coming out at closing time. And they would use that opportunity to um, strike up friendships with people as they came out and also to share their faith with people, maybe give them a little booklet or a Bible. And at first the student union loved it because they, they were being kind. But when there was a different political motivation going on, when a society with a louder voice and more people complained, then all of a sudden it wasn't kind, it was manipulative. Because they were giving out Bibles, and so they put a stop to do that. Now the Christian Union could have said, well, that's it then. This situation has got us stuck. Didn't go as I planned, and I'm not really getting any opportunities here. No, they decided to do the same thing, but at the nightclub on the high street. And because that was public, then no one could stop them. And they could reach more people too. It ended up being riskier, a bit more dangerous. It ended up being harder to do, took longer, it cost more. But where they could have said I'm stuck because someone else has just made a decision that ties my hands. Instead of doing that, they said, well, actually, we don't need to gain an advantage for me here. But we can do something that will help us share the gospel more and more. It's not what I planned. It's not what I choose. It makes life harder. And it feels like I'm just being used to make someone else look good. But that's not an excuse. People taking advantage of Christians, well, God always uses that to open up new ways to speak about Jesus. Now, I've got two more points. They're shorter. Um, another way that God uses our powerless situations is when we are not what they expected. Um, there's a line that stuck with me from um, the weekend away that we had in May. We had a speaker called Andy Robinson, and the line that he said was that Christians should leave behind a massive question mark behind them. And it doesn't mean that we should be weird, mysterious, spook people out. Um, it means that we sh the way we live should say to people we meet, I love you. Even if the message of Jesus is something that they wouldn't agree with. See, the cost of telling your colleagues or your schoolmates you're a Christian is that they will think you're weird, or maybe that they'll think you're prejudiced, or bigoted, or that you've got anti-gay views or anti-women views. Well, tell them you're a Christian anyway. They're going to think whatever they're going to think, but then confuse them by being really gracious by being really loving, by going out of your way for their sake, by being non-judgmental, by being humble. Paul's been stuck in cell for two years, and he's only out to see the light of day, because his fate is a commodity for two people trying to use this to gain influence. But he's caught the attention of Festus, 
And then it's brought the attention of King Agrippa by the end, because he's just not what they expected. He's the, in verse 18, Festus explains how Paul wasn't actually accused of the crimes he, was, he expected him to have been accused of. The strange thing about Paul is not what he's done in verse 19, what he believes about Jesus. But it's clear in verse 7 and 8, Paul's innocence. He's a man of integrity, and Festus knows this, everybody knows this. The previous governor knew this. He found Paul innocent. The only reason he didn't release him was because he wanted a bribe. And Paul never gave the bribe, because Paul is innocent. And he doesn't do that kind of thing. And no matter how much he felt that he could have been of use to God on the outside, it wasn't worth compromising to do what was wrong. Paul's innocence and his integrity then go on to speak volumes about this message he believes. He might think that message is weird, verse 19. He believes about a man who, who's died, that he says was raised again. That would be weird, except Paul's integrity and his innocence speaks volumes. There's got to be something to it. Paul's the only person in this whole affair who's not crooked. When you're at the mercy of the influential, when the social media community determine what people should think of you, or when your housemates gossip about you to make you look bad so that they look good, or when your boss decides to take advantage and arrange meetings on a Sunday because it's convenient for the board, whether or not you can make it, well, do the right thing. Be like Paul. Do what is right. He says in verse 8, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, against the temple, or against Caesar. We break no laws, but we're also respectful to cultural sensitivities. As Christians, we are free to say, I won't do that, you're asking me. Or I will get to do that, because it's my right. But actually, in front of others, we respect, we give honour, we love. And so we don't get accused of the things that Christians uh, are normally accused of. We don't get accused of the things that people think we're thinking. So when we speak about hope in Jesus, when we mention we believe in the resurrection and Jesus' grace and his power, it leaves a massive question mark. We're not what they expected. And the third thing that's true of our story that doesn't make it into the biography is that we're nothing to write home about. Um, April the 18th, 1930 is a, is a uh, significant day in history, I think particularly British history, April the 18th, 1930. It's quite a remarkable day. It's a day like none other since. Um, it, there hasn't been anything like this, totally unique day in British history. And it's gone down in the history books for a very particular reason. As people gathered around the wireless in those days, at 8.45pm, came a news bulletin. The news announcer said, today, there is no news. End of broadcast. And then they played a bit of classical music. That's the day, no news. 18th of April, 1930, remember that? Well, you wouldn't expect something like that in a chapter in a missionary biography. Chapter 8, while I was in the jungle, in Papua New Guinea, nothing happened. <laughs> chapter 9, and so on. Uh, this part of Acts, though, is here. You've got chapter 25 in front of you. And it's written for Christians to know that the path of the faithful Christian living, and bringing the message of Jesus wherever, wherever we are, will often include periods of no news. 
What's the news in this passage? Paul is accused by the Jewish leaders of various things. Does he win his court case? No. Paul is preaching that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's got a lot of material in his bag to explain all of that. And he's engaging with the Jewish leaders who know all about the Jewish rules. So does he start a debate? Does he debate this out and win? No, that's not what's going on here. Uh, Paul is imprisoned. Does he get out? No. Paul's an evangelist. Does anyone become a Christian? No. In fact, we had a sneak preview next week. He gets to speak the gospel to someone else who says, do you really think you can persuade me to be a Christian? That's it. <laughs> what is the news? What is the point of this? The point is this. Paul's at the mercy of the powerful. He's not at all what they expected. And he seems to win no victories whatsoever. Because he's walking the path of the Jesus he's proclaiming. Jesus people will live Jesus-shaped lives that involve these hard bits. Jesus actually was just like Paul, the other way around, Paul is living just like Jesus. If you look at Jesus' life, he was only born in Bethlehem because the governor made a power play to raise a census. And he became a refugee as soon as he was born because of a plot by the king. Jesus was always being accused by religious leaders but at his death, he was pushed from pillar to post as Jewish leaders and the Roman government had him in a bit of a tug of war to manipulate the situation for their own ambition. Jesus' story is one of being manipulated. It's not what I would have planned. And Jesus' story is that he's not what people expected. He taught of God's holiness as a man of God, but he always loved the sinners. Jesus preached purity. And he practiced forgiveness. He was stern and even fiery when it came to God's temple and the religious leaders, but he was always tender to the outcasts, people with illnesses and diseases who could never come in. But what was his life? His life was nothing to write home about. He had 12 followers, that's all. He, did, he died a criminal's death. He didn't lead a political campaign. When he died an unjust death, there were no riots in the streets. There was no religious revolution. When he died, his followers ran away. But in Jesus' life, this is God's pattern. This is what God does in Jesus, and it's what he does in the church. At that moment of most weakness, of the moment of most powerlessness, when he's robbed of, of any agency himself, and he's nailed to the cross, at the moment of what seems to be absolute failure, it's that moment that Jesus was impacting history in an unimaginably powerful and glorious way. His death in weakness was to conquer evil forever, for good, for everyone. When he died, he tore the temple curtain so that anyone could come to God, and it was going to bring God out of the temple to come to people. That began at the cross, it carries on in acts, and it has never stopped. Jesus is powerless and his exploited moment is the very way that people all over the world can be reconciled to God. In Acts, we see Paul walk that road of powerlessness. He walks into what seems to be complete failure where none of the objectives of this passage get met. But two things happen that show that the gospel keeps on going and it's powerful and it's unstoppable and Jesus is keeping on bringing people to God. First of which is Paul appeals to Caesar, we mentioned that. That begins a chain of events 
to get the most prominent evangelists in ancient history into the most prominent of cities. And Christianity is going to be launched to the known world. And the second thing is in verse 22. Agrippa, the king, he's been listening to Festus. Remember, Festus is, uh, is making a flowery interpretation of what's just happened. Festus's point is, Agrippa, I've had this complicated case. I think you'll find that I handled it very well. And verse 22, Agrippa hears all this, and he could be saying, Well done, Festus. I'll pass on to Caesar what a wise and competent governor you are. I hear your point. Actually, he says, I want to hear Paul. I want to hear about this guy. He's weird. He's got this belief, verse 19, about man who rose from the dead, and yet, you can never pin anything on him. He's not what I expected. This moment of weakness not being what they expect, well, there's going to be a new gospel opportunity right over the page. It's not that there's no news, actually. And whatever situation you're in, however uninspiring your journey of sharing your faith with other people is, it's not that there's no news. It's actually that the gospel is going out quietly, powerfully, unstoppably. Christians walk the path of Jesus if that's what you're doing. If that's what you're doing in your house, in your workplace, when your colleagues, or when you're out with friends, Christians walk the path of Jesus. And if you're walking the path of Jesus with integrity in action, truth in words, then when you do that, you do have to expect that path of Jesus to be your path. But there will be power, but it's in your weakness. There will be gospel growth, but it will be in personal powerlessness. Your story won't go exactly as you planned. You're going to feel like you can't, you're not as effective for the gospel as you could have been if it was a different way. People more powerful than you are going to put you where they want you. But it's not true that there's no news. Share your hope. Speak of Jesus. Always do what's right. Walk in integrity. And by the way, we're going to fail at this. When you don't walk in integrity and you get things wrong, then you get to experience forgiveness and live out the gospel in front of other people to share your weakness and show Jesus' forgiveness. And when Christians are doing that in front of other people, you're going to come out as weak. But you're walking Jesus' path. You're not what people expect. You say what's right and you back it up with love. And God uses your small and weak moments to move the gospel on mightily. Unexpected people get to hear the gospel. People you can't have imagined respond. You might not see that. You won't get the glory for this. Your chapter in your biography may still have no news. But your integrity, your love, your gospel living and your gospel speaking by no means wasted.